this morning. We are in the last week, and I don't know if you're celebrating this or bemoaning this. I'm celebrating it just a little bit from my own, my own heart, my own mind, but it, it has been good. It has been good for our church. Going through a process of saying, what does God's word say about some of these difficult issues that we face in the world? Issues in the world that either people talk about in a really unhealthy way or issues in the world that people just refuse to talk about or we push to the side in church and say we're not gonna deal with that. Friends, we have to deal with these issues and and we've tried to according to God's word and and based on the, the truth of the gospel. And if I'm just honest with you, this has been the most difficult week to prepare in terms of how do I say this, so much nuance, so many things going on with this topic of gender. Just to remind you what we're doing, our goal is just to lay a foundation, to give ourselves a framework for thinking about this. So I can guarantee you right now, I'm probably not gonna nuance everything perfectly and there's gonna be things you wish I would have addressed that I didn't address and there's not every Bible verse I can cover about this, but this gets us started. And if you have questions, we can continue that conversation in the days ahead. But we just want to ask this morning, what does God's word have to say about the topics of gender and sexuality and how we live that out, each of us, in our Christian life. And the way we're gonna get started with that is a couple of verses from Mark chapter 10, and then we're gonna go all around the Bible. Uh, There are notes online. If you just go to our website, emmausokc.org slash foundations, it'll get you to some notes. Let's start with these verses. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13. Mark chapter 10, verse 13. It says that the people were bringing children to Jesus that he might care for them, touch them, heal them. And the disciples rebuked the people who were bringing the children to Jesus. Verse 14, when Jesus saw what was happening, he was indignant at the disciples. He was angry at them and said, let the children come to me. Remember, ancient world, children are outsiders. These are probably children that are very sick. They don't have anything to bring to the table. They're not considered important. And Jesus says, let the weak outsiders, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them laying his hands on them. The kingdom of God is about coming to Jesus as if a child. We don't come with anything to offer. We don't come with value. We don't come with insider status. We don't come with any type of strength of our own. We come as children needing Jesus' love and care for him to receive us. And he does receive us when we come that way. We come as children. But I want to remind you this morning Childlike faith in the kingdom of God does not mean childish faith. And sometimes we confuse that in the church. We, every one of us, it does not matter your age in here, the only way you come to Jesus is with childlike faith. Lord, I need you. My only hope is found in you. As we come to Jesus, our faith matures. It it doesn't remain childish. And so as we come to Jesus, we're not fenced off from all the difficulties of life. We're not protected from all the hard conversations of living in a world that's that's full of sin and chaos and confusion. And so what we need as children in the kingdom of God is we need a foundation for dealing with these things because we know 
we know if you take the own children, your own children in your home, children you're around, and you take these hard issues that are out there in the world, you can build fences around your home, around your family, and refuse to talk about these topics, refuse to address them, but I think we've been able to see that that path does not lead where we think it's going to lead. Because the moment they start to learn about these things, and they will learn about these things, we've not provided the foundation or the framework for them to be able to talk about them or, or address them. Or if you go to the other extreme and all we do is scream and yell about everything that's happening in the culture, we don't realize that in the world we live in now, we're yelling and screaming about their friends. And so that is gonna drive them away. That's going to ostracize them from the kingdom of God. But what we can do is say, come to Jesus. And when you come to Jesus, you find a way, you find a path for being able to navigate what's going on in the world. And we know that these sermon topics, especially the topics about sexuality and gender, this is real confusion and chaos in our world. And if you think this is theoretical and out somewhere else, it's not. It is, it is right here. And, and we're talking about our friends and our classmates and our neighbors, and we never treat another person as a problem or an issue. We approach them as someone created in the image of God, who God created and loves and Jesus died for them. And so these issues of gender and sexuality, yeah, they're confusing, they're chaotic, they're difficult, but they're not theoretical because this is the world we live in. And so we wanna say, what does God's word say about this? So what we're gonna do is we are going to jog, not walk, through the Bible and try to think, okay, what's the overview of scripture about this topic? And then I wanna help you draw a couple of conclusions about it. So we're gonna jog, not walk, starting in Genesis chapter one. No surprise, okay? Genesis chapter one, starting in verses 26 and 27. What does God's word say? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. From the very beginning of the Bible, you see God's good intention that there would be men and women, male and female, that this is part of God's creation plan. This is part of God's design for the world that he would create a world of this diversity of men and women, male and female, to live together in the world. And then you see Genesis chapter two, verses 24 and 25. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Out of the diversity that God has created, male and female, he brings unity. This creation of God, this design of God as male and female is there from the beginning. And I want you to see as we go through scripture, especially as we get to the teachings of Jesus, Jesus does not stray from the foundation that you see in Genesis chapter one and two. This is the foundation for our faith. This is the foundation for our lives, how we live. This is God's design. And our job is to learn to trust and to live in God's design for the world of male and female. Now, how do we do that? What does it look like? Well, what happens when sin breaks into the picture? Genesis chapter three, verse six. So when the man, or not the man, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. 
she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. When sin comes into the world, sin is about our desires being distorted, desiring something that should be good, that God wants to give to his people, except in our sinful desires, you know what we say? We say, I want what I want, and I want it when I want it. And this is the human condition. This is the problem of saying, I desire, I want to take something that's not mine to take. I want to live however I want to live, no matter what God says, no matter what his design is, no matter what his timing is, I'm gonna live however I want to live. And we begin to not trust God's word. And we begin to think that God's plan for his people is not good. God, I know you said this is how marriage works. I know you said this is male and female, but I really don't like it. And I really don't think it's good. And so I begin to take, I begin to not trust God's wisdom and God's word. And I want to live however I want to live. And we know that what happens with sin, it leads to brokenness. Genesis chapter 3 verse 16. Right after God gives the promise of the gospel that one will come to crush the head of the serpent. Right after that, he says to Eve, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. I keep thinking about this comment from an Old Testament scholar where he said that in this verse, to love and to cherish has become to desire and dominate. Something that should be good, a good gift of marriage that we would love and cherish one another, has now become a desire that dominates others, that seeks to take from others. That God's picture of marriage and sexuality and gender, when it's broken, it affects everybody around us. And what God has created us for is no longer how we're living. So what happens in the next few chapters of Genesis? Genesis chapter three through 12, what's going on in these next few chapters? You find people trying to play God. Hear me out on this. When we no longer trust God's word, or God's wisdom, or God's plan, we take that job into our own hands. And we start to try to play God. And we say, this is how things should work. And, and when we try to do things, violence, domination, we start to cross these barriers that God has set up for his people, for his creation, and, and it results in chaos. You see that in Genesis chapter three through 11. But here's the key. You still see God working through families to carry out his plan. So even when sin comes into the world, even when chaos breaks out with gender and sexuality, God doesn't stray from his design and plan that through these families, his plans would be carried out in the world. Now, what do you see across the Old Testament with gender and sexuality? You see some really surprising things throughout the Old Testament. Ideas that help us rethink, reimagine what it means to live out as, as male and female. Surprisingly, you find imagery in the Old Testament where God's work among his people is portrayed in the kind of work that a mother would do or a wife would do. Now, I'm getting ready to go on vacation for a few weeks, or a few weeks, I wish for a few weeks. How about a few days? <laughs> I'm going to go on vacation for a few days this week, and so I'm, I want to say something to try to help avoid a bunch of unnecessary emails to me, okay? So I am not saying that we should refer to God as mother. I, I don't think that that's what scripture teaches. In fact, you see very clearly in Jesus' ministry and, and Jesus' prayers 
that he refers to our Father who's in heaven. And so I want to be really clear about that. But don't miss, don't miss that in the Old Testament, God is compared to a mother bear protecting her cubs. So you ladies, you moms, when you go into mother bear mode, you're just doing the work of God at that moment, okay? Uh, you're just protecting your cubs. That, that's the imagery that, that's used of God. Imagery of use, used of God of being a mother eagle. Uh, even imagery used of God of being compassionate and nursing and even giving birth. All these imagery, this imagery of God reminds us that how did God create mankind? In his image as male and female. The work of God is not confined simply to what we've considered to be male categories. Then you have the prophets of the Old Testament. There are male prophets and there are female prophets in the Old Testament. When Josiah when the law is found and Josiah is trying to bring purity to the kingdom in 1 Kings chapter 22 and he finds the law and he tells his people to go out and inquire of the Lord, where do they go? They go immediately to a female prophet, to Huldah, and ask her, what is the word of the Lord for this situation? Wisdom is portrayed in the Old Testament in both male and female, but the Old Testament never does away with the male-female distinctions either. And sexuality is always protected as a male and female coming together for the purposes that God has laid out for his people. Now here's the question, what happens when you get to the New Testament? Like I'm sure Jesus changes this, right? When you get to the New Testament, you know there's the, the mean old God in the Old Testament and then this new kind God in the New Testament? Nope. When you get to the New Testament, Jesus carries forward God's plan for his people. Now you find some really interesting things. Don't forget, Jesus has male and female disciples. His 12 apostles, his 12 disciples are, are men, but there are many women who follow Jesus. And these are wealthy women that, that they are giving money toward the ministry of Jesus. They're a part of what Jesus is doing along the way. You find Jesus breaking a lot of stereotypes of what it would have meant in that day to be male. How Jesus interacted with children and, and women. When I was the chaplain in New Orleans for the AAA baseball team in New Orleans, when I was the chaplain down there, one of the guys made it very clear. He said, professional baseball players, they don't really do the dad thing. They don't really interact with their kids a lot. And I was like, that is so sad. Like that, that, that stereotype would be put out that if you're a professional baseball player, you're not going to interact with, with your kids. That that would be some type of macho masculinity means I'm not going to interact with, with my kids. Jesus, fully man, interacted with kids. He, he gave dignity to women who were around him. He didn't marry, which would have been considered a very non-masculine thing in, in his day. He didn't fight or use violence when people came at him. He showed compassion and gentleness to people around him. You find out that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are, which would have certainly included sexual temptation, but, but he was perfectly sinless. And you see that Jesus continues to teach against what in the New Testament is called porneia. The reason I put that word up there is because it's one of these words that encompasses all types of sexual immorality. I want you to do that no matter what the local bookstore says, no matter what you might hear from friends at school, no matter what you might be taught, Jesus continued the teaching of the Old Testament about male and female, about sexuality, about what it looks like to follow God's design and plan for his people.
When you think about the question of gender, though, somebody will say, wait, 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 time out, Owen. What about the eunuchs? What about the eunuchs? Didn't Jesus say something about that? Doesn't that change the idea of gender? Now, kids, kids that are in the room, if you don't know about the word eunuch, just ask your parents on the way home, okay? Uh, I'm not going to explain that in the room just, just to be safe, but uh, if you have questions about that, ask your parents on the way home. Matthew 19 is interesting on this. Let's look at Matthew 19 because if you have friends or family members who are transgender or, or very supportive of, of transgender life, this is a passage that's often used to say Jesus allowed for other expressions of gender. And so it's this, it's this concept in Matthew 19 of the eunuch. Matthew 19, starting in verse 8. This is the parallel mirror passage to what we talked about last week as well in the Gospel of Mark, but we're in Matthew 19 for this. Matthew 19, verse 8. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, that's that word porneia, except for that reason, and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. And then pay attention to verse 12 here. For there are eunuchs. Eunuchs were considered unmarriable because they couldn't produce children. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth. It's been a reality of their life since birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. That's where you groan a little bit and like, oh yeah, that's the hard part right there. And then, the second half of that verse, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This passage in Matthew 19 that's sometimes used to talk about a transgender lifestyle or Jesus was changing teaching about, about gender, this passage is Jesus affirming a high view of marriage God's design for marriage, and it is a passage where Jesus affirms the call to singleness in the Christian life. And some of the mess that we've gotten ourselves into in the church regarding sexuality and marriage is because we have lost the beauty of a call to a single life. What that looks like in the Christian life. It may be for a season, or it may be your call for the rest of your life, but that Jesus is saying is for the sake of the kingdom of God. This is not a passage where eunuch is somehow a third category of gender. This is just saying some people find themselves in a situation where they're not going to be married, and those people are fully accepted into the church. They are fully accepted into the kingdom of God. You do not have to be married, and you do not have to be just male or just female to be accepted into the kingdom of heaven. God calls all of his people to come to him. Now, what do you find in the teaching of Paul? Like maybe it changes when you get to Paul. No, not really. There's one verse in Paul's teaching that is very confusing when it comes to gender. It's Galatians chapter three, verse 28. Galatians chapter three, verse 28, Paul says, that in Christ there's not Jew or Greek, there's not slave or free, and then he says, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And some people will read that verse and they'll say, so Paul is doing away with the categories of male and female. 
No, I don't think that's at all what's happening in this verse. I think what Paul is saying is that whether you are male or female, that cannot keep you away from being a part of the kingdom of God. It cannot keep you away from Christ. Guys, don't pray the next prayer that I'm gonna tell you about. Okay, this is an illustration, not, not a command. But at the time of Jesus, there was a Jewish prayer that would sometimes be used where men would pray, God, thank you that I am not a Gentile, thank you that I am not a slave, thank you that I am not a woman. Don't wake up and pray that prayer in the morning, okay? We're not, we're not commending that. We're not saying that's a good prayer to pray, but it was a prayer that people would pray, thank you that I'm not a Jew, thank you I'm not a slave, thank you I'm not a woman. What's Paul doing? He's cutting against that idea of his time and saying, oh, Jews and Gentiles are a part of the kingdom of God. Slaves and free are part of the kingdom of God. Men and women are part of the kingdom of God. And in Paul's teaching, he maintains the distinction between male and female, but he also shows how we're brought together as part of the church. Where does this point to for eternity? In eternity, people do not cease to be male or female. That is maintained because in eternity, in the new creation, we will have real bodies. Now some people say, well what about Matthew chapter 22 though? Didn't Jesus say something there? Yeah, Matthew chapter 22. Jesus said, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like angels in heaven. Being like angels in heaven doesn't mean we cease to have gender, it means that marriage is no longer part of the plan at that point, that marriage is carried out, it's been fulfilled, the purpose of marriage. And so for all of eternity, we will have real bodies. There will be such a thing as gender, male and female, even though marriage, the way we think of it right now, won't be part of the picture. So here's the question. How do we live now? If, if that's the overview of the Bible about gender and sexuality, and I know we ran through that, but if that's the overview, if that's the scriptural foundation, the question is, okay, how do I live now? I wanna give you a phrase for that. How do we live faithfully now in regard to gender and sexuality? And it comes with this phrase. Jesus came to be a servant, not a stud, all right? You can laugh at that, you can chuckle at that, you can say, what are you talking about? Jesus came to be a servant, not a stud. Now, I think I've told you this story before, but when I was a sophomore in high school, I was asked to give a devotion as part of a Bible study at school. And so we were having this devotion. I was a sophomore in high school. I was preparing this Bible study. And somehow, I have no idea how I, well actually I think I do have an idea of how I reached this conclusion, but I gave a devotion, a Bible study, about how because Jesus walked around in his, in his ministry so much and, and people were drawn to him, Jesus, Jesus must have been like a muscular, engaging, really cool guy. That's a devotion given by a sophomore who wishes those things were true of him, okay? <laughs> that, just, that did not come from the Word of God. That did not come from the Bible. But in my mind, in my mind, Jesus had to be muscular and engaging and cool and appealing, and people wanted to be around him. And I was setting up this, this stereotype, this imagery of what it meant to be a man of God that simply doesn't match the teaching of Scripture. And you think, Man, that's a sophomore in high school. Thankfully, that type of theology doesn't impact the church, except it does. 
except it does. You find in the church, I'm not saying our church, but in the church in general, some really unhealthy stereotypes about what it would mean to be a godly man or, or a godly woman. And what I want to say to us today is that our calling as a church is not to look to cultural stereotypes for what it means to be a man or a woman. It's to look to the scripture. And in scripture, our Savior is a servant. Our Savior did not come to perpetuate or to live out some worldly idea of what it means to be a man. He came as the Son of Man. He came as the Son of God. He came as the King of Kings. He came as one who would not be served, but would serve. He came as one who would lay down his life for us. And so when we think about what it is to live out our sexuality, live out our gender, we are called to serve one another, not dominate one another. We are called not to look like the world, but to look like our Savior, that our eyes would be set on him and he would change how we live. Jesus came not to be a stud, not to, not to put forward this idea of, of worldly sexuality and gender. He came to serve and to give his life for you and for me. That's our Savior. That's the one we're following. That's the way we're going to go. How do you live that way? How do you get to that point? I want to give you two steps, two main points. How can you live as a servant? How can you live like Jesus? Point number one is that we will affirm sexual purity and we will reject hypocrisy. So we will affirm sexual purity and we will reject hypocrisy. Why does this matter? This matters because churches have jumped up and down and yelled about same-sex marriage and transgender lifestyles and all along, pastor after pastor has fallen because of adultery. All along, churches have been covering up sexual abuse. All along, our churches are being rotted from the inside out by the epidemic of pornography among men and women. And so we've yelled about same-sex marriage and transgenderism, and yet over here, in many ways, we've been living so hypocritically. And it's no wonder that our kids are confused sexually and in terms of gender, because they hear that, they hear one thing, they hear one message, us yelling about their friends at school and how they live, and then they turn around and they see sexuality and gender being devalued in many ways in the church. And it causes this incredible confusion and, and they begin to draw away. Plus, we're kind of living in the after days of what we're gonna call a true love waits backlash. You might remember True Love Waits. Uh, it started in like in 1993, so I was coming right into youth group in the days of True Love Waits. I want to be clear. True Love Waits, it, as it's intended, is a really good program. This idea of waiting until you're married to, ha or until you're married to have sex. It's, it's a good program. The problem for those of us that grew up in a True Love Waits era was True Love Waits was often presented almost like the prosperity gospel. Like, hey, if you'll wait until you're married to have sex. It's gonna be this incredible marriage and incredible sex and everything's gonna be amazing. And what happened is people went through that and the promises didn't always lead out the way that they were told. And the people making the promises were often caught in hypocrisy and, and abuse. And so what happened is there was a backlash against this that maybe God's design is not right. 
And so students started to pull away from purity, started to pull away from integrity. And we're here to say we're not gonna go that direction either. What does sexuality in the Christian life really look like? Here's what we're gonna do. We are going to reject porneia. We are gonna turn away from sexual immorality. We're gonna turn away from lust and pornography and adultery and everything that goes outside of God's design and plans for sexuality. We're, we're gonna turn from that because that is not where true life is found. That's not where true love is found. And we are going to pursue integrity and virtue and holiness, knowing that there is where true life is found. And something that has been so helpful for me, a phrase that I think about on this topic quite often, is in life, our strongest desires are often not our deepest desires. Let me explain this because this has been so helpful for me on this category. Our strongest desires are often not our deepest desires. You may be thinking, there's just no way I can ignore or overcome these sexual temptations, these feelings that I have. Like I, I just, I have no idea how to cut loose of this pornography. My life is dominated by lust. I have these feelings for someone and there's just no way I can not go down that path. Those desires, those, those feelings, they feel overwhelming. But remember in your life, if every one of us in here was driven by our strongest desires in a moment, oh my goodness, <laughs> the world would be completely chaotic and our lives would be completely chaotic and overwhelmed. Our lives are not drawn, driven by our strongest desires. We want our lives to be driven by our deepest desires. And our deepest desires says, I love and trust the way of Jesus. I want to live for the glory of God. I want to live according to the word of God. It doesn't always feel like that on the surface. Sometimes there are some really strong temptations and desires and emotions on the surface, but that is not going to guide my life because I believe that the way of Jesus is good. That if we followed the sexual ethic of Jesus, we find out that purity is not outdated. It's the way to life, that, that there's no abuse there's no pornography, there's no dangerous controlling sex, there's no need for ab abortion. All these things that cause such pain and brokenness in our lives, if we follow the way of Jesus, we find that the way of Jesus is good. And so as believers, we say we are going to affirm sexual purity and we're gonna reject hypocrisy. And then number two, final point, second point on this, we are going to affirm the gift of gender, and we are going to reject harmful stereotypes. So we're gonna affirm, we're gonna say in God's word, gender is a good gift, but at the same time, we're gonna reject some of these weird, harmful, destructive stereotypes that have been set up in the world about being male and female. Because if we eliminate gender distinctions, if we just collapse everything together, Man, the world gets confusing. And really, all you're left with at that point is stereotypes. But if we push to these extremes, you find these really for, this form of toxic masculinity and radical feminism, and that's not the way to go either. But the way of Jesus says that if you will affirm, if you'll hold on to God's gift of gender and reject some of these harmful stereotypes, then you'll find the way to life. I think about my own life. And I say these things carefully, but I, I want to be 
I want to be vulnerable with you and, and transparent with you. I think about my own life. Over the years, I've struggled a little bit with the fact that I just wasn't always interested in or good at a lot of the things that men were supposed to be good at. Uh, and that creates some weird feelings in you along the way. You're like, if I'm a real guy, if I'm a real man, guys are supposed to be good at X, Y, and Z, and I'm not, I'm not good at those type of things. Like most home uh, repair projects in our house, I try to do it, and then Amanda comes in and rescues me afterward, okay? So like, it's like Owen watches YouTube video, Owen tries to fix thing, breaks thing worse, Amanda comes in and fix it. Like that's generally how home repair works in, in our house. And sometimes those things can really, really begin to affect, like, am I not being a man the way I'm supposed to be? Growing up, especially high school, late high school into college, I was called gay many times because I wasn't dating anybody regularly. Like, the um, first person I dated seriously was Amanda when we were seniors in college. And when you don't always, you're not interested in a lot of the things that guys are supposed to be interested in, you're not dating somebody, you know, seriously— you go through college being called gay. And after a while, that, that begins to affect your mind. It begins to affect your heart. I cannot imagine what my life would have been like if I was growing up in a world where those things were, let's be careful with language here, forced on you, encouraged, like pressured towards you. If I had grown up in that, that type, of, type of world. But I see the way that, that God has worked in my life and show me what it truly means to be a husband, what it truly means to be a dad, what it truly means to be a man of God. When we think about these stereotypes, uh, imagine a situation. So workplace, school, uh, there's a woman sitting at a table, and a guy comes up to her and is being overbearing, cocky, making her feel uncomfortable. And there's another guy at the table who stands up to that guy and says, hey man, like, no, back away, we're not, we're not doing this. And then there's another group of guys at the table that just sit there and do nothing. In that scenario, who's truly being masculine? Well, we know the answer to that. Like everything inside of us says, I know in that situation what it is to be, to be masculine. And so we are not getting rid of, of gender roles and distinctions here. We are saying we want to live those out in a way that honors the Lord. Shane Pruitt, who leads student ministry for North American Mission Board, he had a post on Instagram this last week where he was just reminding dads, it is not toxic masculinity to teach your son to be respectful and honoring and protective and wise and hardworking and responsible. Not teaching that is toxic. Teaching them, though, that is good. We want to go down that direction. We want to say we're going to hold on to that way of living. What are some verses that can help us in this? I skipped over a slide earlier, but I want to put these verses in front of you because they're so important. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Look up on the screen. I want you to get these verses in front of you before we wrap up. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says there, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Teenage guys, men in the room, women in the room, teenage guys especially, write this verse down. Put this in your phone as a note. First Timothy chapter five, verses one and two. How are we gonna live? We are going to encourage older men as we would a father. We're gonna look at younger men as we would brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity.
What does this tell us about gender and the Christian life? What do we do when we run into questions about someone's internal sense of their gender doesn't match their biological, biological sex? What do, we, what do we do in situations like this? Let me give you three things I think would be helpful for you in this. Number one, just listen to the person. Just listen to them. If you know people who are struggling with questions of gender, the best thing you can do is listen. Preston Sprinkle, who I think is one of the best authors on this topic, I've really picked up a lot from, from his work, not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but I think he's really helpful. He's kind of my go-to on this, on this topic. He says, if you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. In other words, in other words be careful about putting people in a box. You, you don't know somebody's story. You know their background. You don't know all that might have led into that. Just, just listen. And then love them. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is hopeful. Love hopes that what you deal with right now is not the end of the story. And love is truthful. We live in a really, really strange world where disagreeing with someone equals hating somebody. Friends, disagreeing with someone is not hating them. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do is just have an honest conversation with somebody about something going on in our lives and be patient. These questions of transgender lifestyles, things that are going on in the world today, it has particularly impacted our young women. Upper elementary, into middle school, into high school. And there are so many things we could say about that, so many things we could address. Would you listen to them and, and love them and be patient with them? We're so quick to react and try to provide solutions or get past those emotions. We love them and we lead them forward. And what do we do? We build up one another. A few weeks ago, we were looking at some lists here for Emmaus, just who's a part of our church, kind of what's going on in the church. Did you know at Emmaus, I, I was blown away by this, we have an incredible number, an incredible group of men from the ages of 20 to 40. Like, it, it was, we pulled the list and I had to look at the list again because I was so blown away with the men of God that he has placed in this church. I am thankful for that. And did you know what Emmaus? We have women who are actively involved in serving in all areas of our church. And I am so thankful for that. God gives us same-sex friendships in order to encourage and support us. And God gives us opposite-sex friendships in order to encourage and support us. And in all ways, we live with purity because we know we're building up one another, that God is doing this work in his church. Let me give you a question as we wrap up. Final slide, final question, let me give you this question. What is your life built on? When you think about your gender, when you think about honoring God sexually, when you think about all that God has put in front of you, where your hope is found in life, what is your life built on? Can I encourage you? not to build your life on personal desires and emotions and opinions, because you know what happens to those things? They change. <laughs> they, sometimes they change between the morning and the afternoon. Sometimes they change one day to the next. Don't build your life on that. The other thing not to build your life on, don't build your life on cultural stereotypes. Why? Because those things change, sometimes between the morning and the afternoon. Like you wake up in the morning and you're supposed to be angry at one thing, and by the afternoon, the whole you know, thing has shifted to the other side. If you chase around culture and politics and what's popular, that's an exhausting way to live, and there is no foundation for your life found in that. 
Do you know where there is something worth building your life on? It is the good, true, unchanging word of God. And you know something else worth building your life on? It is Jesus Christ, the one who gave his life for you, the one who accepts you to come to him to find life and love and hope and security. If you're gonna build your life on something, you're gonna say, how do I live my life as a man or woman? How do I live my life as a single person or married? How do I live my life in high school or in the final days of my life? Build your life on Jesus. He is where hope is found. He is where peace is found. He is where true love is found. He is worth everything you have to give. Would you bow your head with me as we wrap up? Father, we live in a world that we know is so often confusing. It's chaotic. (laughs) It changes, it feels like, every day in different ways. And these questions of of gender and sexuality and how we live our lives, God, they're hard questions. God, I know, I'm sure there are people in the room today who are struggling with these questions. And God, I pray that they would have heard from your word this morning that they are loved and they are valued and that what we feel and what we go through right now, it's not the end of the story. That with you there is hope. Hope now and hope for eternity. God, if there's anyone in the room who they're just struggling with being single right now, it's become overwhelming for them. They don't know how to continue to stay faithful to you. They just feel frustrated with life. God, would they be reminded of the way of Jesus, his love and acceptance and peace? God, if there are marriages in the room who are hurting, would you bring healing? Lives who are just torn up by pornography, God, would you bring hope and direction and repentance and a way forward? And God, I pray in a really special way this morning for our kids and teenagers in the room. God, these are hard, hard things for them. But I pray that even today, that elementary students in the room, that middle school and high school students in the room, that they would choose today to build their life on Jesus, that they would set their life on the truth of God's word. God, build us up as a church. Lead us forward. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.